Chapter 34 of Balsamo the Magician by Alexander Dumas. Translated by Henry L. Williams. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Near Neighbors On parting from young Tavernay, Gilbert had plunged into the crowd, but not with a heart bounding with glee and expectation. Rather, with the soul ulcerated by grief which the nobles' kind welcome and obliging offers of assistance could not mollify. Andrea never suspected that she had been cruel to the youth. The fair and serene maiden was completely unaware that there could be any link between her and her foster brother, for joy or sorrow. She soared over earthly spheres, casting on them shine or shadow according to her being smiling or gloomy. This time it chanced that her shade of disdain had chilled Gilbert, as she had merely followed the impulse of her temper. She was ignorant that she had been scornful. But Gilbert, like a disarmed gladiator, had received the proud speech and the scorning look straight in the heart. He was not enough of a philosopher yet not to console himself with despair while the wound was bleeding. Hence, he did not notice men or horses in the press. Gathering up his strength, he rushed into it at the risk of being crushed like a wild boar cutting through the pack of hounds. At length, breathing more freely, he reached the green sward, waterside, and loneliness. He had run to the river's end, and had came out opposite St. Denis Island. Exhausted, not by bodily fatigue, but by spiritual anguish, he rolled on the grass and roared like a lion transfixed by a spear, as if the animal's voice better expressed his woes than human tongue. Was not all the vague and undecided hope which had flung a little light on the mad ideas, not to be accounted for to himself, now extinguished at a blow? To whatever step on the social ladder Gilbert might rise by dint of genius, science, and study, he would always be a man, or a thing, according to her own words, for which her father was wrong in paying any attention, and not worth her lowering her eyes upon. He had briefly fancied that, on seeing him in the capital and learning his resolution to struggle till he came up through the darkness, Andrea would applaud the effort. Not only had the cheer failed the brave boy, but he had met the haughty indifference always had for the dependent by the young lady of the manor. Furthermore, she had shown anger that he should have looked at her music book. Had he touched it, he did not doubt that he would be thought fit to be burned at the stake. As he writhed on the turf, he knew not whether he loved or hated his torturer. He suffered, and that was all. But as he was not capable of long patience, he sprang out of his prostration, decided to invent some energetic course. Granted that she does not love me, he reasoned. I must not hope that she never will. I had the right to expect from her the mild interest attached to those who wrestle with their misfortune. She did not understand what her brother saw. He thought that I might become a celebrity. Should it happen so, he would act fairly and let me have his sister, in reward of my earned glory, as he would have exchanged her for my native aristocracy had I been born his equal. But I shall always be plain Gilbert in her eyes, for she looks down in me upon what nothing can efface, gild, or cover my low birth. As though, supposing I attain my mark, it would not be greater of me than if I had started on her high level.' 
Bad creature, senseless being. Woman, woman, your other name is imperfection. Do not be deluded by the splendid gaze, intelligent smile, and queenly port of Andrea de Tavernay, whose beauty makes her fit to rule society. She is but a rustic dame, straight-laced, limited, swathed in aristocratic prejudices. Equals for her are those empty-headed fops with a fet minds, who had the means to learn everything and know nothing. They are the men to whom she pays heed. Gil Bear is but a dog, less than a dog, for I believe she asked after Mahon and not about my welfare. She is ignorant that I am fit to cope with them. When I wear their like coats, I shall look as well, and that, with my inflexible determination, I shall grasp. A dreadful smile was defined on his lips, where the sentence died away unfinished. Frowning, he slowly lowered his head. What passed in that obscure soul? What terrible plan bent the pale forehead, already sallow with sleepless nights, and furrowed by thinking? Who shall tell? At the close of half an hour's profound meditation, Gilbert rose, coldly determined. He went to the river, drank a long draught, and looked around, saw the distant waves of the people in a sea coming out of Saint-Denis. They so crowded in upon the first coaches that the horses had to go at a walk on the road to Saint-Ouen. The Dauphine wanted the ceremony to be a national family festival, so the French family abused the privilege. A number of Parisians climbed on the footboards and hung there without being disturbed. Very soon, Gilbert recognized the Tavernay carriage, with Philip holding in his capering horse by the side. "'I must know where she goes,' thought the lover, "'and so shall follow them.' It was intended that the Dauphiness should sup with the royal family in private at Muette, but Louis XV had broken the etiquette so far as to make up a large party. He handed a list of guests to the Dauphiness with a pencil, and suggested she should strike out the names of any not liked to come. When she came to the last name, Countess du Barry's, she felt her lips quiver and lose blood. But sustained by her mother's instructions, she summoned up her powers to her aid, and with a charming smile returned the paper and pencil to the king, saying that she was very happy to be let into the bosom of all his family at the very first. Gilbert knew nothing about this, and it was only when he got to Muette that he recognized the coach of Dubarry, with Zamor mounted on a high white horse. Luckily it was dark, and Gilbert threw himself on the ground in a grove and waited. The king, then, shared supper between mistress and daughter-in-law, and was merry especially on seeing that the newcomer treated the usurper more kindly, even than at Compagne. But the Dauphine, gloomy and careworn, spoke of having the headache and retired before they sat at table. The supper was prolonged to eleven o'clock. The king sent a band of music to play to the repast for the gentry of the retinue, of which our proud Andrea had to admit she was a member. As the accommodation was limited, fifty masters had to picnic on the lawn, served by men in royal livery. In the thicket, Gilbert lost nothing of this scene. Taking out a piece of bread, he ate along with the guests while watching that those he attended to did not slip away. After the meal, the Dauphiness came out on the balcony to take leave of her hosts. 
Near her stood the king. Countess Duberry kept out of sight in the back of the room with that exquisite tact which even her enemies allowed she had. The courtiers passed under the balcony to salute the king, who named such of them to the Dauphiness as she did not already know. From time to time, some happy allusion or pleasant saying dropped from his lips to delight those who received it. Seeing this servility, Gilbert muttered to himself, "'I am a touch above these slaves, for I would not crouch like that for all the gold in the world.' He rose on one knee when the turn came for the Tavernets to pass. "'Captain Tavernet,' said the Dauphiness, "'I grant you leave to conduct your father and sister to Paris.' In the nightly silence, and amid the attention of those drinking in the august words, Gilbert caught the sound coming in his direction. "'My lord baron,' continued the princess, "'I have no accommodation yet for you among my household, so guard your daughter in town until I set up my establishment at Versailles. Keep me in mind, my dear young lady.' The baron passed on with son and daughter. Others came up for whom the princess had pretty stuff to say, but that little mattered to Gilbert. Gliding out of the covert, he followed the baron among the two hundred footmen shouting out their master's names, fifty coachmen roaring out an answer to the lackeys while sixty coaches rolled over the pavement like thunder. As Tavernet had a royal carriage, it waited for him aside from the common herd. He stepped in with Andrea and Philip, and the door closed after them. "'Get on the box with the driver,' said Philip to the footman. "'He has been on his feet all day and must be worn out.' The baron grumbled some remonstrance not heard by Gilbert, but the lackey mounted beside the driver. Gilbert went nearer. At the time of starting, a trace got loose and the driver had to alight to set it right. "'It is very late,' said the baron. "'I am dreadfully tired,' sighed Andrea. I hope we shall find a sleeping place somewhere. I expect so, replied her brother. I sent Labrie and Nicole straight to Paris from Soissons. I gave him a letter to a friend for him to let us have a little house in the rear of his, where his mother and sister live when they come up from the country. It is not luxury, but it is comfortable. You do not want to make a show while you are waiting for the coming out in the suitable style. Anything will easily beat Tabernay, said the old lord. Unfortunately, yes, added the captain. Any garden? asked Andrea. Quite a little park for town with fine trees. However, you will not long enjoy it, as you will be presented as soon as the wedding is over. We are in a bright dream. Do not awaken us. Did you give the coachman the address? Yes, father replied the young noble, while Gilbert greedily listened. He had hoped to catch the address. "'Never mind,' he muttered. "'It is only a league to town. I will follow them.' But the royal horses could go at a rattling gait when not kept in line with others. The trace being mended, the man mounted his box and drove off rapidly, so rapidly that this reminded poor Gilbert of how he had fallen on the road near the hooves of John's post-horses. Making a spurt, he reached the untenanted footboard and hung on behind for an instant, but the thought struck him that he was in the menial's place behind Andreas' carriage, and he muttered, "'No, it shall not be said that I did not fight it out to the last. 
My legs are tired, but not my arms. Seizing the edge of the footboard with both hands, the inflexible youth swung his feet up under the body of the coach so as to get them on the forsprings. Thus suspended, he was carried on, spite of the jerking, over the wretched, rutty road. He stuck to the desperate situation by strength of arm, rather than capitulate with his conscience. "'I shall learn her address,' he thought. "'It will be another wakeful night, but tomorrow I shall have repose, seated while I am copying music. I have a trifle of money, too, and I will take a little rest.' He reflected that Paris was very large, and that he might be lost after seeing the baron to his house. Happily it was near midnight, and dawn came at half after three. As he was pondering, he remarked that they crossed an open place, where stood an equestrian statue in the midst. "'Victory's place,' he thought gleefully. "'I know it.' The vehicle turning partly round, and Andrea put her head out to see the statue. "'The late king,' explained her brother, "'we are pretty nearly there now.' They went down so steep a hill that Gilbert was nearly scraped off. "'Here we are!' cried the dragoon captain. Gilbert dropped and slipped out from beneath to hide behind a horse-block on the other side. Young Tavernet got out first, rang at a house-door-bell, and returned to receive Andrea in his arms. The baron was the last out. "'Are those rascals going to keep us out all night?' he snarled. At this the voices of Labrie and Nicole were heard, and a door opened. The three tavernets were engulfed in a dark courtyard where the door closed upon them. The vehicle and attendants went their way to the royal stables. Nothing remarkable was apparent on the house, but the carriage lamps had flashed on the next doorway, which had a label. This is the mansion of the Armenonville. Gilbert did not know what street it was as yet, but going to the far end, the same the carriage had gone out of, he was startled to see the public fountain at which he drank in the mornings. Going ten paces up the street, he saw the baker's shop where he supplied himself. Still doubting, he returned to the corner. By the gleam of a swinging lamp he could read on a white stone the name read three days before, when coming from Moidon Wood with Rousseau. Plastriera Street. It followed that Andrea was lodged a hundred steps apart, nearer than she was to him at Tavernay. So he went to his own door, hoping that the latchet might not be drawn altogether within. It was pulled in, but it was frayed, and a few threads stuck out. He drew one and then another, so that the thong itself came forth at last. He lifted the latch and entered, for it was one of his lucky days. He groped up the stairs one by one, without making any noise, and finally touched the padlock on his own bedroom door, in which Rousseau had thoughtfully left the key. End of chapter 34 Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia.